and she sees Harrow's what she calls like Harrow's dumb girlfriend or uh, like dead girlfriend floating in the river towards her. Do you swim in the river though? Like I don't think you swim in the river. We don't question Maria's miming. It like doesn't <laughs> always make sense, but it's supposed to be subjectively yes. true instead of objectively true. <laughs> it's like interpretive dance. Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast, Unresolved Textual Tension. It is me, your host, Maria, and today I am joined with both of my handsome bitches and the ever-lovely and amazing Mistress Sapphire, Gina. And she does not look an ounce less than a Mistress Sapphire today. She also is very aptly dressed for the book we're talking about today. Listen, I've been uh, reading some of our comments on our Light Lark video and a couple people are like, please read Nona. Please read Nona. Well, guess what, bitches? We read Nona the ninth. We read it. We did the thing. Well, before we start, I should say that we have previously read Gideon the ninth, who we don't have a video up for it because somebody's audio wasn't good. We don't know who. Wills. It was Wills. Uh, I'm an editor and I can edit that out. It was Wills. Who knows? It's still up actually as a Patreon live stream. Join our Patreon, by the way. You get live streams to uh, our monthly book club. Pretty mm -hmm. cool. So we also then read Get, uh, Harrow the ninth, which you can see up here in the card that I'll put here. If he that, actually right does there. It. I think our general uh, feelings about it were that we really loved Gideon and we thought that Harrow was a really, really ambitious and well put out book. But I think some of us like didn't quite enjoy it as much, which makes sense. It's a really complex book. And then this book, I think we all are back to really love it. It was a religious experience. Ooh, uh, I see. Gina, Gina. What's the tea? Give us, give us the voice. None of the ninth. I love Nona as a character. She's absolutely great. Plot, like, is actually a little bit better written. Like, it's easier to follow and it makes a little bit more sense. However, I'm not really sure how much this book has added to the story of the series or the plot of the series at all i actually agree with that arguable the best part is noodle and there's one particular line that has to do with noodle and it is the best thing ever because i can absolutely relate to this it's the thesis of this book i know what line you're talking about we haven't we haven't spoken about it it's the thesis of this goddamn book it's the wham line i have a rank or uh the way i think about each book gideon was the funnest of the books it was just pure unadulterated good time um, Harrowheart for me is still the best book. A tech, it's 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 ambitious and masterful, and it it blew my mind as far as what I thought like could happen. Nona shares a special place in my heart that is so lovely and uh, warm, and 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 it's very emotional. It is the most I would say emotional of the books. But I will agree with Gina. I don't think it is actually adding a lot to the overall course of the because because if you think about from where we left off at the end of harrow to now nothing actually plot wise has significantly changed ignore maria completely it's a very important part of the book no it is important but plot wise i don't think anything fundamental has changed i disagree okay guys so here's one quick note originally nona the ninth was going to be the first half of the next book called electo the ninth and what she realized is that, oh, I kind of want to stick around with this character more. And the events that need to happen to get to the second half of the book at the time, Electo, were taking too long or a book in their own right. So there is an extent to which, like, yeah, this is only like half of a book, essentially, in terms of what happens. Even the author says, many people were bewildered when Nona sucker punched her way into the world, throwing Electo into total disarray. 
Nobody was more bewildered than my agent and my editor, two people who I imagine will have ascended to a state of higher consciousness by the time this is all over. This wasn't supposed to be its own book. I don't care. I think it should have been. And she made a great decision. I agree with that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying plot-wise, not a lot has fundamentally changed. I think it was so important that it was core to it. Again, different thing. When you reach the third book, it kind of is a bit of a washy book in my opinion like there's been a lot of series that like the third book is just it's there it's beneficial but it's not really moving things along and at this point what I really really want is just a book about John that's all I want at this point I just want to know he the narrator for this book makes John's like like later half of the the this particular book um is absolutely fucking amazing and like wonderfully like sardonic and beautiful and i just want a book about john the narrator the frenzied way she reads the lines too while still keeping john's ordinariness in it is just masterful it's great i was thinking about that this morning oh that narrator is like the other half of the genius but also i still think this plot is integral to the overall plot there's only one specific thing that changes the status quo and that is them getting to the tomb nope i disagree i think this should be its own book but i think it should be a shorter book i think a lot of the middle half is like not super necessary like an in-between novella yes almost, yes in between novella. i think you could cut the first half you could cut in half disagree 100 percent. the way that it's written the first half of the book actually does give a lot of necessary insight to nona as a character like you can't really follow the nona story without the first half of the book However, in the story of the Locked Tomb series, you probably could have cut that because I'm not sure how vital it is to really understand the background of Nona, who's only going to live six months out of the story, and we're probably going to forget about it in Electo. I think you could have gotten everything you needed for Nona because I very quickly, like by chapter five, knew who Nona was, how lovely, caring, open, wide-eyed she was. And while I enjoyed everything that happened, I can acknowledge, because subjectively, I love it. I wouldn't change anything. But from an objective standpoint and looking at the overall plot of the books and, like, the series, eh, it could have been shortened. I think it's integral. It's because of the emotional value it adds to the story. I think it deepens the importance of each emotional role. And I think without it, it would not be as rich and full and important for the decisions that are about to be made. And also, I think it's a wonderful interlude between the really intense and fast-paced, and not always fast-paced, I shouldn't say fast-paced, but in the, like, really important bam, bam, bam moments. And also, like, we got a lot of Harrowhark, and I think Electo's going to be important and integral enough that we should best understand her and her true essence of what she wants out of life. All of what you said is true and could be true if the book was shorter. Nothing, I agree with everything you've said. And I I do not think this book shouldn't exist. My argument is just, it could be shorter. And I think everything you've said could still happen. I think there's no problem with the length that it actually is. I think we got a lot of really cool detail. And I think it was beautiful and fun. And I think the level of detail that we go into is totally supportable. And I like it. Again, subjectively, I love this book as it is. It's just, I agree with Gina. I don't think it does a lot for the plot of the entire series. I think to break it down more than that, we're going to have to go into spoilers. So we can probably do that as we get into the plot, because there is a twist about who Nona is that actually does undo some of the plot relevance I thought the book was going to have um, that we can talk about. So 
Let's go ahead and what's the premise of this world? You start this book after coming off of Harrow. And just to give you guys uh, who it's been a minute, the end of Harrow is Gideon is in Harrow Hark's body. She's in the river and she's about to pass the fuck out. And she sees uh, Harrow's, what she calls like Harrow's dumb girlfriend or uh, like dead girlfriend floating in the river towards her. Do you swim in the river though? Like, I don't think you swim in the river. I think you hover like in space. Like, Electo's just floating towards her is the like the kind of vibe I got. We don't question Maria's miming. It like doesn't <laughs> always make sense, but it's supposed to be subjectively yes. true. Yes. Subjectively true. <laughs> it's like interpretive dance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> this book opens uh, and there's two separate things happening. It opens with a chapter from John's point of view uh, and Harrow Hark. And you're not immediately aware it's Harrow but it's told uh, as if Harrow is watching John and he's telling her his story, how he became the Necro Lord Prime, how he became God, how the world ended. And it starts that first chapter is just a real him telling her where he went to school, how he what and you discover that the world like there was issues happening. Humanity needed to flee. Uh, Armageddon was a coming. And he, along with Mercy Morn and Augustine and a couple of other, and they don't, during these, they don't refer to anyone by their names. It's just A dash M dash. And I loved it. He had to always call Anastasia the nun because otherwise it would have been another A dash. And it's about their how they, they got to know each other, which was they were all working on a cryo project. They were working on a way to cryogenically freeze humanity so they could pack as many of them as they could on ships and fly the entirety of the planet off into space to Tau Ceti system or a Tau Ceti like place where they had stuff going on. At the end of that first chapter, you find out that their funding has been pulled. Despite it going forward, despite thinking them thinking everything is fine, it's pulled and it puts them into turmoil. And so every time you go to John's chapter, it's him picking up from where he left off with Harrow and telling the rest of the story. And you get to walk through the ruins of these old places. And it's beautiful. On the other side, you get introduced to this character named Nona. And you're like, who the fuck is Nona? And when we finished Harrowhark and we were like, okay, the next book's called Nona the Ninth. Who the fuck is Nona? You basically very quickly realize that Nona has no memories from past six months ago. She's been kind of learning how to live again. And she's probably in Harrowhark Nona Jesmus's body. Which I did not realize at first at all. I realized pretty quickly. I had come in being like, she's Electo. Because Electo also had golden eyes. But then I was like, oh no, it's Harrow. Somebody described her body as a dead person's, like a corpse's <laughs> body. And and that she, like everybody thought she was like 16. And I was like, oh no, this is my bitch Harrowhark. <laughs> this is her skinny ass body that doesn't want to eat. <laughs> like... This is hysterical. But anyway, and she has been learning kind of how to be a person and getting her memory back. And, and she describes her like baby days, but she's being taken care of by an interesting assortment of characters. Number one, the ever fantastic Pira DeVay, who was, uh, we were introduced to her during Harrow Hark, uh, Harrow the Ninth, and Pira DeVay was the cavalier of Gideon the First. Very quickly, just so that we don't uh, confuse people, there's Gideon, the main character of Gideon the Ninth, and then Gideon the Lictor, who's Pyrrhus. Yeah, I call him Black Gideon because he was black. I know, it's super creative. Just to remind people what happens with Lictors who are the fingers and gestures of the Necrolord Prime, it's what happens when a necromancer sacrifices like their, their cavalier, they're called basically their bodyguard, and eats their soul so that they can do super cool necromancer stuff all the time. Um, and so one of the big things with the series is like, this is what Harrow did to Gideon, 
And it's also um, what drove the motivations in the last book of the necro, the lictors there being really butthurt about having to kill their cavaliers when they find out that, well, they think that the uh, god, John, teacher, we're all going to refer to him by those various names, could not, didn't they didn't have to kill their cavaliers and eat their souls. Um, and so in this book, that is also a thing that will come up a lot is lictors and their relationships to their cavaliers there's two weird lictor cavalier relationships number one obviously gideon and harrow because harrow chose not to eat gideon and never uh, attained full lecturehood but then there's also the curious case of para de Vey, where despite gideon being a functional full lictor Pyrrha existed in a pocket of Gideon's mind. I like to think this is because they were such good friends. And anytime she talked about him as her best friend just made me so fucking happy and so sad at the same time. But anyway, she existed in a pocket of his mind. And during places where he was either in the river or passed out, she could take over his body. During uh, Harrow, Gideon the first died fighting number seven, the resurrection beast that they refer to as number seven. And Pyrrha has had full control of the body ever since. And the book starts and she just, Nona keeps referring to Pyrrha as Pyrrha. And I'm like, is she in Gideon's body? And then there's a point where she's shaving and she's just, she's, cause Pyrrha DeVay was like flirty. She was gorgeous. God called her the hottest cavalier of them all. Besides Augustine, like the only person hotter was Augustine's mother who also got a call back in this book, <laughs> she's in Gideon's body, but essentially just very like this fantastic feminine presence, but in this incredibly like ugh, masculine bodder, but really roughed up and scruffed. It's great. I love it. Mwah. The other two people taking care of our girl Nona are two names you would also recognize from earlier uh, Camilla Hacked and Palamides. Sextus. And what you realize is that because last we saw Palamides, he was in a bubble universe in the river, which I do, I'm not going to explain again. If you haven't read the book, just <laughs> that, sorry, you're going to be confused. Uh, bubble universe. And he was like, uh, I'll figure out how to get out. Good luck. And Camilla had basically been carrying his skull around because he'd made the bubble universe and attached it to a piece of his skull. And by this book, you realize he did get out and he is now in Camilla's brain and not as like again not Lichter style but just existing and so when she loot takes she steps back from consciousness he can step in but only for a specific amount of time can he ever take over her body at one time without it having catastrophic effects you hear about her talking about Palamides and you're like where's Pal like I at first was like Palamides is here and then it was Palamides' eyes and Camilla Hecht's face and I was like Oh, okay, this is what's happening. And it's really sad because Camilla Hecht and Palamides do do each other such a loving. A biffles. A biffles. They're so they're so just genuinely and I don't think it's romantic, but just like platonic soulmates. They're just so They trust each other so much. Can we just agree that the term for them should have been calamities? <laughs> <laughs> I loved when uh, Ianthe called them sexed. That was great. I, I mean, that was, there were so many little jokes in here, like the uh, tour through Uranus. As always, these books are hysterical. I'm not going to spend a lot of time because a lot of this is very slice of life. It's you getting a feel for what Nona's life is like. And basically, she is 19, but doesn't have a lot of knowledge about the world. Camilla and Palamides and Pyrrha are all taking care of her. It, it feels like a weird family. And then she's the little kid, even though like her and Camilla are similar in age. Um, 
and they're all protective and you can and Nona loves everything. My girl Nona loves everything. Despite living in a post-apocalyptic refugee camp, she is just having a blast. Yeah, and she loves the smell of like the plastic and burning materials and the fresh air and the car exhaust. And she loves little six-legged dogs. Yeah, named Noodle. She has a zest for life that is the kind of Disney-esque, just enjoying what is happening in the moment for what it is. Like, that is Nona in a little shell. She's fantastic. She goes to school. She's a teacher's aide, despite not knowing. Is, is Like, she can't read. She can't write. What happened with Nona? Like, is it basically that she basically was, like, not reborn, literally, but, like, her consciousness is, like, basically that of, like, a newly minted child yes it yes. is that's why she doesn't know anything or remember anything. that's why she's cute like a child she's just got zest and and chutzpah and she's she's great she everything she does she does it with zeal except eating she hates eating <laughs> Everyone has i really feel that she likes eating pencils though and erasers and sand and dirt which is a good hint for later eggs are a specific hate of hers she'd prefer cold mush Anyway, and they've got a life. They have a rhythm to it. Pyrrha goes out and works at night. And you get the idea that uh, Blood of Eden put them here. That they have been working with Blood of Eden. And Blood of Eden has somehow betrayed Calamities and Camilla a bit. And you're not really sure in the beginning. But there's a really nice rhythm to their life. Camilla and Pyrrha walk uh, her to school every day. Then Pyrrha goes to work. Camilla drops her off at school. Goes back, picks her up before lunch. Like There's just this beautiful slice of life rhythm to the first part of the book with tiny little details being sprinkled in here or there number one there's a giant blue light that has appeared in the sky that is causing people to go fucking crazy they call it the blue especially what you discover later necromancers are getting heckin affected by it nona is not affected by it at all in fact she on occasion quite slight sitting and and feeling it slight like she'll she'll peel back the windows and just feel the blue light on her because she she likes it um and what you figure out Kind of quickly, or at least I did. How did you guys, how long did it take you guys to realize it was a resurrection beast? I had um, suspicions it was a resurrection beast pretty early on, but I was like, okay, maybe this is something else. Maybe it isn't. But then once they started talking about necromancy not working, I was like, oh yeah, that's a thing that happens with resurrection beasts, which are the ghosts, the angry ghosts of the nine planets that the Necrolord Prime brought back to life. So they're like zombie planets, essentially, and they are fantastically cool and i love how much everyone is like we have no chance against them at all you would need three lictors just to get it to go away from here and and not even to kill them you just have to punt them into a different dimension like that's it at one point like halfway through the book they said it was a resurrection beast this book says a lot of stuff like it is so you have to be actively paying attention to what is going on so much and so much of this book and i guess this is like my real critique of it is that you know the author really loves her puzzle box right she likes to just kind of tell things to the reader so they have to figure out what's going on so she tells them kind of to the side and subtly and she is really good at the puzzle box of it yep but as in harrow not so much gideon but in harrow like it is hard to figure out what is going on sometimes because you're having to interpolate a lot of information and especially in this case nona sometimes just listens to conversations and is basically like a security camera where she's not even really thinking about what's going on she has no idea what it means and so like a lot of times you can kind of figure out what's going on but you're not sure and because you're not sure you then have trouble figuring out more information about it because you're not quite 
so like one of the things is after I finished this book, I went on Reddit and looked at all the theories people had. And now all my theories that I was mostly sure about are really firmed up. But after I finished this book, like I don't know that I could have explained it to somebody else, even though I was correct. And one of the places that I don't think this works great is that we don't get quite an answer what happened, how Calamity, how Camilla and Calamity, that's their ship name, and Pira got to this planet. Because last we knew, Camilla was had it was confusing in Harold what was happening with Camilla and now there's another level Camilla flew off and was working with Blood of Eden it was her crown and Captain Deuteros in a ship the last we saw was them punting off together so it was never explained how they got there from Cannon House oh, oh, oh no Blood of Eden picked them up Camilla Gideon Nav's dead body and uh, Captain Deuteros. There is, by the way, a small um, little journal entry at the end of the paperback version of Gideon the Ninth that actually kind of explains it's uh, the Captain Deuteros like giving a log of what happened to them. And it also explains why Blood of Eden dislikes the Nine Houses, which is going to be one of my major complaints we're going to get to. But it actually, it, like, sometimes I wish the author would just be a little bit more specific about the groundwork so that the mysteries could be more interesting and i would agree with that i that was a, a huge complaint for me was i didn't understand i mean eventually you get like why they don't like john but not really why they're so against the houses um who just for the most part seem to be minding their own business and i still can't find actual evidence of the houses themselves doing anything bad and it's not super clear i don't think it's the houses that are actually bad i think it's the fact that quote unquote john or god um, like, well, I think there's like a knowledge or an understanding or maybe an inherent understanding that all these other people are descendants of the rich. But again, that doesn't, why? That was like 10,000 years ago. I mean, even without that, they're loyal to John who Blood of Eden fucking hates. So they're not going to like anyone who's loyal to But we to actually them. don't know if Blood and Eden even knows that. Like, that's the thing. We can plausibly generate a lot of motivations for it, but it's never said in the book. That, and that's my problem. In the short story, it's actually mentioned that um, it, part of it is that they don't like that they keep getting kicked off planets because resurrection beasts are coming. But like, that's not in, that's not literally not in the book. That's just a thing that can kind of be interpolated. I think that makes the conflict between blood of eden and the nine houses feel really weak it's like i remember arguing with steven at the end of game of thrones where he was extrapolating ways to make the ending work and i was like you're having to do that work you should not have to do it this is a fundamental conflict in this book series. and i think the other thing is like i said the problem is that this is background a world building stuff that really should be concrete it's not one of the big mysteries or plot reversals of the world it's so it actually makes those weaker because you don't understand the foundations they lied on i 100 percent agree i could see that but i also like i really personally enjoy like ambiguous clues and stuff i can understand structure wise why that's not appropriate but i personally like i don't know i think it's it's a stylistic preference it didn't take away your enjoyment exactly and i think it's just a stylistic preference that some people do really well and some people do okay and some people do great and blah 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 and it's just i think this is like a choice she made that i can appreciate so continuing with the plot we got derailed there this is going to take a <laughs> while good luck us there is a fundamental conflict between blood of eden but we do learn that blood of eden agreed so when camilla got calamities out he wanted to save the sixth house and so he got the oversight board of the sixth house to come and speak with blood of eden then blood of eden kidnapped the oversight board and has been hiding them from calamities and he's like are they alive are they dead because there are multiple branches and factions of blood of eden one of them 
Mervwing? I don't remember their names. There's uh, Tessaphon, which is Captain We Suffer is Tessaphon. Uh, and then there is the Mervwing, which is the other group that has been carting around. Tessaphon is the one that we mostly deal with in Captain Sub. Okay, so this is a thing that I think is, again, an unclear world building thing, but maybe I just didn't catch it. Is it ever explained why that house wanted to leave? It's mentioned at the very end, I think, that there was some kind of an oath or something that they cared about. But, like, why did they secede? I think it was because Palamides realized that... Uh, Palamides realized quicker than everybody else during Canaan House that Lictorhood was fucked up and that John was doing fucked up shit. And, and, Camille, and I think he wanted to separate while he's fine with the Nine Houses. I think he is no longer because he's actively trying to like help kill John. Um, and so I think that's why is he wanted because he knew he was going to help in killing them. And I think he wanted to get his house out of harm's way. Why does he want to kill John though? It's unclear is the thing. None of us have an answer. Calamities and Camilla are trying to figure out what happened to the sixth house. Kira's off working and it, like there is lots of conversations happening of secret spying stuff. But uh, a lot of time is spent with Nona at her school where she has her gang her group of friendlies who are absolutely fucking adorable. So uh, her school is like a mixed class. It's kind of like a old schoolhouse vibes. So you've got like older kids and younger kids. And of the kids, there is the coolest, the most badass bitch named Hot Sauce, who apparently used to like, she used to be in the- A child soldier. She's got burns and stuff that she happily just like shows people to freak them out. It's great. I love Hot Sauce. And everybody respects Hot Sauce. And Hot Sauce respects one thing. The angel, the science teacher. She she thinks that the angel's pretty cool and uh, she wants to protect the angel. And then there is Honesty, whose full name I forgot, but he's this boy who lies a lot and he's hysterical. And then there's Born in the Morning and then there's Beautiful Ruby and then my boy Kevin, who's seven years old and just involved with these older kids who talk foully, talk about gross things. And it's great because uh, as class aide, Nona has to keep them from swearing a lot. And so it's just great because she'll be like, honesty. It, like, it's just her interactions with them because she's literally a 19 year old. And like the oldest one of them is Hot Sauce, who is 14. But she's also six months old. So Nona is just, and everybody's like, Nona's dumb, but she's sweet. But she really wants to be part of the gang. And they're like, she is part of the gang. And it's so cute how much she likes them and wants to be a part of them and thinks they're cool. And there's so many little details here that really adds a richness to the world. Just when they're walking down the street in the classroom, the other very important character at school, Noodle. Noodle is the angel's dog. And during the one hour of science a day, Nona gets to take care of Noodle and walk her. And it is a highlight for Nona's life. And basically everything is kind of fine at school until they find out there is a ship. And what happens is they get dragged. Like one morning they wake up and Blood of Eden busts in and like drags them down into a uh, Blood of Eden building. Specifically Nona, Camilla, um, and... Here, not the people at the school. They get taken to this Blood of Eden building and you get to meet Crown, who is my bitch, Corona Beth Tridentarius, Prince, uh, Princess of the Third. 
um, who I adore, and who Nona looks at. Nona? Nona's attracted to, like, a lot of people. And and also, (laughs) as a side note, Maria said that there is a richness to the world. I think this is a perfect example of why I feel like this book is so important, is we get to see the other half of the universe that is not the Nine Houses. I I completely agree. I think it could have been done in less pages. Yeah, Corona Beth, which, by the way, I had kind I hadn't guessed, but, like, she's called Crown in the in the lingo of the blood of Eden and like it's such a good pun it's literally like the crown that crowns others like that her name she has because they, they all like we suffer as we suffer and we suffer there's someone who's called Pash who's our lady of the passion like I love these names they're so great I love the idea that humanity is just like we're gonna have names that are phrases they go in and you meet we suffer and we suffer uh and basically what they're told is that there is a ship coming into this planet's atmosphere and it is a cohort ship it is from the nine houses something is about to go down and they're like oh do you know what it is can you recognize this ship and they're like oh no we don't and pira's like well it is definitely capable of these things because pira's bad bitch and knows everything because she's been alive for a very long time i love her so much anyway (laughs) <laughs> uh, and then after interacting, and it's it's great because uh, the audiobook narrator does such a good job. I love Our Lady of the Passions. She has the most annoying but fantastic voice. It's kind of like nasally and annoying. <laughs> they basically are like, this is what information we have. They're like, we're going to monitor this. And Camille's like, where's the oversight body of the six? And they're like, we think they're alive. And um, But anyway, and then they're like, we're going to go visit the captain and you're like captain who it's captain judith deuteros the necromancer of the second house and she's not doing too hot she has got the blue sickness from that giant blue thing in the sky uh she's not doing great um calamities pops up and you discover and it was great that uh calamities this entire time has been pretending to be camilla (laughs) to get info he tries to like help judith but while this is happening judith starts screaming and saying weird shit and she starts speaking directly to nona some weird shit my green sister like all this stuff and it's great and you don't fully understand what's being said i highlighted some of it just because i think it's really great Give me one moment, guys. Yeah, I wanted to go back and reread it, but I, I have the audiobook version and like finding it is annoying. But everyone is super cool and haunting how and then in the end, we realize only Nona knows what it said. But you know what I hated is that nobody questioned her and we actually being able to see what they were asking her about what Jude uh, said. I mean, I guess you could say that like they think she's a kid and just making shit up like, you know. But considering they also know something weird is going on with her. By the way, I should say that Calamities. I do like that ship name. Calamity and Calam- and uh, Camilla's and Pira's um, theory is that she is a combination of Gideon and Harrow's soul molded together into a new person. And they need uh, Gideon's body because what happens is when a soul, a re- soul meets its original body, there's a gravity thing that happens where the soul goes back into that body. And they think that'll split the two of them apart because... Nona's not doing so hot. No, that's an understatement. Anyway, so this is what Judith Deuteros says to her. She says, dust of my dust, such similar star salt. What they did to you and what they wrung from you and what shape they made you fill. We see you still. We seek you still. We murdered, we who murder. You inadvertent tool. You misused green thing. Come back to us. Take vengeance for us. We saw you. We see you. I see. That makes so much sense now. I know, doesn't it? It's so cool. <laughs> and then later, uh, Judith kind of comes back and she has this really great part where, where Judith Deuteros herself is talking to who she thinks is Harrowhark and she says, Ninth, where 
is the mercy of the tomb? Where is your sword in the coffin? Who are your masters now? And who do you master? Where is my cavalier reverend daughter? Where is yours? And then her voice rose. Because I saw her in the waves. She was there in the gray water. I saw them all. They hurt me. Where is my hunger? I eat and eat and eat without surcease. My green thing. My green breathing thing. It's great because later... uh. Nona's like, what was she talking about? The, like, the green thing and the salt and the reverend daughter. And they were like, Nona, she didn't say anything. She was just screaming. And you're like, mm, I gotta file that way for later. Obviously, that was important. Anyway, so Judith's not doing hot. She's dying from the blue sickness. Corona, by the way, is totally in love with her. Or very, very reliant on her. I didn't see under in love, but I saw very reliant on like, literally almost say, like, in love. For me, I took it as a, like, it's one of the last vestiges of her old life and her new life. And just someone who has been a part this whole time. I chose to read it as yeah. hot lesbians, but okay. I mean, listen. It's authorial intent that I was able to interpolate. They load everyone back in the, the vehicles they brought them to the Blood of Eden based, and they're like, we're going to take Nona to school. And Crown drops Nona off at school. And Nona goes to school, and everybody's freaking out because there's going to be a broadcast. Also, this happened a couple of days before this, but I'm just going to mention it. Her friend Honesty does weird jobs for money. He's drugs, stealing shit. And he was hired for a job where they were going to steal uh, air conditioning unit bits from these massive trucks going by. And these trucks are part of the convoy, which everyone in school knows about because it's this real weird, creepy thing that are just driven around all the time. Nobody knows what is on the convoy, but it's just constantly riding around the city. Honesty's doing this mission. And then this guy freaks out because he, he went into one of the trucks and there was people with white eyes who stared up at him. And he was like, they're zombies. They saw my face. Oh, no. And they realized, like, Nona was like, why are you guys trying to steal from the convoy? Convoy, even I know that stuff. I'm just going to leave that there and we're going to continue. <laughs> we're just we're just going to leave it, file that away for later. Let's go. And basically, a broadcast is going to be made from the nine houses. Uh, and everybody is like, is this war? Do we need to sign up? Like, what's happening? Everybody's going to go home for lunch. But nobody comes and picks Nona up for lunch. It's always Pira or Camilla comes and picks her up uh for lunch so she stays there she gets um because the only teacher there today is uh, a uh the angel and so she's bonding with them um and then everybody comes back from lunch and they're like oh yeah this broadcasting ooh, crazy stuff and when walking noodle Hot Sauce and Nona decide they're gonna go to the city square and they're gonna watch the broadcast I also want to mention that Nona's like mostly persuaded to do this because she thinks it's so cool to leave a written message on noodles uh like <laughs> just stuff it in the collar and for it to send it she thought that was so cool so they go to watch the broadcast and basically it is Ionthe Tridentarius who is puppeting fucking Nibirius it's Babs uh and you remember Babs if you read the first book he has a beautiful quaff of hair which his dead body still maintains but Ionthe doesn't do it the right way as Corona Beth tells her she doesn't use pomade Ionthe is beyond a bamf she is such a great character I love also the way the voice actress Ionthe and Corona Beth both have similar voices but they're different and there's mm -hmm. one point where it's just dialogue without dialogue tags and you can tell in the audiobook who it is by the voice and and so Ionthe shows up and is like kind of bitchy to everyone <laughs> and basically is like, you need to give up the uh, Camilla and Palamides essentially. In the broadcast, she's just like, give us yeah. everyone from the house. And then she's also like, and this message is also being delivered by, and she pans over to the corpse-like visage of who? Gideon Mav. 
whose name now is uh, Kiriona Gaia. <laughs> oh, how on the nose is that? Who is uh, announced to be the daughter of God. Watching this, uh, Nona is like, that's one of the faces from my dream. Because she keeps dreaming of the saltwater exper- pool experience with um, Harrow and Gideon. Um, and everybody thinks like she's being made to record these every morning when she wakes up to try to figure out who the fuck she is. Like, is she Harrow? Is she Gideon? Which one? And she was like, oh, that's the girl from my dream. So then they go back to school. Uh, or no, they're running away. Shit goes down. Like, stuff is bad. And the angel in, in a armored truck sees them scoops them up and is like what the fuck did you guys do this was and she's great i love the angel's voice and the way she speaks she's got a a really great vibe to her by the way this is about halfway through the book like there is a a large section of this book that is just slice of life that we went past and then this is where and now plot's gonna actually happen towards the end of the slice of life portion i started getting a little annoyed that nona couldn't really interact with the plot too much because she was like essentially too dumb she's she's childlike um but once the plot actually started kicking in i didn't mind too much part of it is that i talked um in gideon and then in harrow about how mirrors the the author's characters have like this weird lack of interiority in a certain way and i couldn't quite put my finger on it then but having done a bunch of um critiqued a bunch of uh, uh submissions from our patreon which by the way you guys should go join i uh, offer personalized critiques i realized what it is which is that on the one hand the characters do have a lot of emotions and they have a lot of sensory details which make them feel very real but there's very few thoughts where they actually think through their motivations one of the things that um <laughs> I actually kind of annoys me about Naomi Novik's writing is that sometimes her characters sit around and think about why they do things a little bit too much. But here, that doesn't happen at all. Characters never really think about what they're doing. Nona does it a little bit more than the others. Yes. But And it also feels more normal for Nona to be a blank slate because she is childlike um, and doesn't really understand what's going on. But this is one of the reasons the other characters almost always feel more real than the characters who viewpoint you're in. To me, anyway. I would say in this novel, it's a stronger usage of that. Um, I mean, I think it might even be a fault in the previous ones. But I... No, it is a fault. Will and I both agreed on that in the first book. But in this one, it works really well. It's because it makes things really mysterious. And I think it's a really big, important impact that really, really shows you in a very subtle way when she finally makes her own choices and acquires some agency, but not much. I thought Harrowhark had the most interiority because there was a lot of Harrowhark thinking about what she was going to do and how she was going to do certain things. What I will say, I think Muir partially does this to keep shit secret from us. So like there was that whole scene <laughs> where in the last book, Harrowhark poisoned the soup. And at no point was she like, ah, yes, I shall put marrow from my thigh bone into the soup. And then, Pa-ha. and she, she surprised us that way. And that was a great scene. We all loved it. Similarly in this book, something that is being actively hidden from the reader is that Nona knows that she's dying. Like, not just sick, but that she's dying and she doesn't have a lot of time left. It's part of the reason why, and we haven't mentioned this, but uh, Nona's about to be six months and she wants a six-month birthday party real badly. The book opens. Nona, by the way, is, like, totally okay with dying. Yeah. She's like, oh, I know other people are going to be upset, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The angel picks him up. The angel takes Nona to her building, which is apparently, like, a really 
scary place. And the building she lives in is known to be a really rough part of town and people are always surprised, but she gets taken to the building. She comes in and she sees Camilla and Camilla is so relieved to see her and she, she bursts in and she's like, I'm alive, I'm safe. You can stop worrying now. <laughs> Nona's so cute. She's so fucking cute. She's so earnest and adorable. I love her so much. She's like, where's Pira? And then Camilla's like, no, Pira left to pick you up from school at lunchtime. <gasps> this is our personal Yaga. noodle. Yes, it it's is. She's the right kind of color, too. She's missing two arboreal legs. And so Pira is missing. And everybody's like very upset that Pira is missing. At this point, we also get, um, you know, because Camilla is so busy and she's like, okay, record your own dream. And so Nona is, doesn't know how to work the tape recorder, but doesn't want to disappoint her. So she ends up hearing a conversation that Camilla had with Palamides where they keep switching back and forth the bodies and recording their dialogue to each other. So it's like, she says something, stops the recording, he goes back and listens to it a second later and then says it. And guys, I ship Camilla and Palamides so hard and it's such a tragic Aww. love that they're both in the same body and one of them's killing the other and they can't interact and yet they're so in love. I completely agree, Will. It's the best thing ever. It's so sweet. It's so cute. There's this beautiful moment where um, Pyrrha kind of yells at them because you're only shown it once, but once upon a time they used to let Nona go to the beach a lot and swim in the salty water at night. Some people came, some cops came and confronted Camilla. Nona freaked out. Nona got shot <laughs> in the water. And then all of a sudden she comes to and there's a bunch of dead bodies all around her. Um, and you realize that Camilla and Palamides at some point can join up, can be in this body at the same time. And it has terrible effects on Camilla's body. Like she just starts eking blood from all of her fucking pores. Pira says, you have to stop doing that. It is so fucking dangerous. You're basically eating her. And, Cam and or Camilla's like, he's basically eating you. And Camilla's like, but we're so happy. Like we're happy then because they get to be together at the same time. And it's so, eh, just take my heart and rip it up in pieces and throw it away. Mira, you fucking jerk. She's like, can I go to school today? And Cam's like, you don't let me go. Palamides wants to thank your teacher for bringing you home safe last night. So they go to school and Camilla gets to meet uh, the angel and Palamides gets to meet the angel. And at first everything is fine, but then it starts getting a little tense. The power goes out. The teacher mentions that she'd been on this other planet where bad shit was happening. And Palamides ends up asking her, uh, also hot sauce is there, by the way. Palamides ends up asking her, like, did a necromancer ever do anything to you? And she's immediately like, how the fuck do you know that, buddy? And then there's this tension because no one is not really sure what's going on. But you know that they have now identified each other as people on opposite ends of this battleground. Also... Nona had ended up sketching something that the teacher was like, what the hell is this? And by the way, what it is, is I think on Reddit, they said it's either a hippopotamus or an elephant. Like it's a pre-resurrection animal that only she only knows about like very vaguely, but there's no way Nona would have been able to see it. And so there's this very tense moment of them being like the teacher being like, who the fuck is Nona? And she keeps asking Nona to go into the kitchen with uh noodle and nona's like no thanks i think i'll stay here <laughs> like <laughs> i'm good basically what ends up happening is while they're having a tense discussion and they're about to say like aim is or the angel her actual name is aim uh is about to say something really interesting and then all of a sudden something happens and you're not sure at first but then when nona wakes up you realize 
she'd been shot through the head. And it was pretty gruesome, honestly. Yeah, and she comes back to life, and she's like, oh shit, and Ames freaking out, and then Passion, Our Lady of the Passions is there, who you find out is actually Ames' bodyguard, and everybody's freaking out, and they're like, Ah, you know, like, people are coming up. There's going to be a fight. And Nona's like, where's Hot Sauce? And they're like, Hot Sauce is in the boiler room. She's fine. But, and then the angel's like, um, but she saw Nona because Hot Sauce hates zombies. And zombie generals and wizards, their terms for uh, necromancers and everyone that lives with necromancers. So she's like, you know, be careful. And then shit's about to go down. And so they send Nona to go into the same place where hot sauce is. And at first hot sauce is like, I saw to help me. Did I make it up? And Nona's like, yes, you made it up. It didn't happen. Cause at first she doesn't get what she's saying. And then she realizes that she hot sauce doesn't want to believe she saw Nona get shot. And now Nona's alive. Pash, aim and Camilla take care of the people that were coming to attack them. And they come out and hot sauce is like, she sees the pile of blood from where uh, Nona was shot. And she's like, I didn't make it up. You did die. And then she shoots Nona in the face. It is a hardcore scene because you got to remember that Hot Sauce hates necromancers and everything to do with them. And Nona is just kind of trying to hide that this is what happened. And it's it's such a good scene. And it feels so real because the thing is, Hot Sauce really likes Nona. Like she's the one person she seems to show real affection for. It's a really cool moment when she shoots her, though. It's because right before she shoots her, she says, you're out of the game. And that's so like overwhelmingly badass. But also at the same time, Nona literally came up to her and was being incredibly accepting, incredibly loving. And she just gets shot in the face. And when she wakes up, she's literally a banshee. Yeah, so she wakes up and she has, because the entire time she's been talking about when she has tantrums. And she's only had two tantrums in her life. She's very proud of that. Not enough to be, like, special, but not enough to be annoying. Or not enough to be impressive, but enough to have been annoying. And she tries very hard, and everyone around her tries very hard to keep Nona from getting upset. She wakes up, she's been chained down, she sees Camilla's chained down, and she is She's just fucking pissed and she's like, I'm gonna have a tantrum. And she like rips herself out of her chains and she just like grabs a chair and starts like fucking shit up and screaming. And like, she just like, the armed blood of Eden people are like, oh, fuck no. This is a very pivotal pivotal part because Nona is zip tied to a bed and handcuffed to a bed and she literally pulls on it and she knows she's not strong but what she does know is that she regenerates and she knows she can get hurt without dying so she literally yanks her arm out of the handcuffs and zip ties to the point where she severs her feet and her wrist and she regrows them and she becomes this weird gore monster with, uh, and with, like, screaming capabilities that, like, deafen people. She passes out again, and she wakes up, and Cam's there. We suffer, and we suffer is there, and they, they have a conversation about, like, what's happening, and their plan is they need to go get that body, because they need the body. Number one, Calamities and Camilla want it to be able to free Nona's souls, because they think it'll get Gideon out, but also... They are here to try open the locked tomb. The thing that Harrowhawk Nona Jesimus was guarding and also opened as like an eight-year-old. They need uh, Gideon Nav's body because she's the blood of the god. They're deciding to send Crownin to go talk to because one of the things that Ianthe specifically asked for 
was her sister Coronabeth Tridentarius. And so Coronabeth's like, I'm going in. And Cam's like, or Palamides is like, don't send her in. It's it's not going to go well. She's weak in front of her sister. She's not going to do like, yeah, yeah, don't do this. Don't send her in. And they were like, no, 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 we have to send her in. So they send Crown in. They're listening through Coronabeth's uh, earpiece, which is an earring. And she meets like Iante. And it's, um, it's like, it's a really touching reunion scene because like, you know, from in the Harrowhark, book that Yanthe really misses her sister and loves her sister and will kill anyone who fucks with her sister and she thought Corona was dead and so it's touching and she's like you beautiful slut and she was like look at you wearing studs you don't you don't have the face your hair have you been moist like and it's just like the way they talk to each other is just insult to insult and Corona's crying and she's like you have to rescue Judith you, you have to and she's like Judith Deuteros, why would I t- <laughs> let her die? And it's just, it's this great scene. And then all of a sudden you hear another voice. And who is it? God damn it. It's Pira DeVay. But she's taken on the affectation of Gideon the First. Again, that was her uh, necromancer that she was the uh, cavalier for. Black guy Gideon. And so you're like, oh, everyone's like, Pira's done us a heckin' betrayal. But through this thing, uh, Pira is able to leave codes for them that basically says everything is fine you need to like trust me uh, I got this because we suffer and we suffer is freaking out that Corona Beth uh, betrayed them and yada yada and what you find out is that when they took Judith Deuteros in uh, so Pira went to go like ingratiate herself to Yante um, but Judith uh, has a new spy piece because eventually Yante uh, takes it like Pira pretends to be betraying them and tells her that the earring that she's wearing is the uh, spy device, and they crush it so they can't hear anything anymore. And uh, we suffer, and we suffer is freaking out. And uh, Nona's literally like, she was being awfully dense. And she keeps going, Pira said everything was fine. I wish she would have picked me up from school first, and then none of this would have happened. And it's because she understood the code, because it's established earlier that they have code words. And then uh, Camilla, or Calamities, I don't remember who's in control of the body at this point. Calamity. Is like, yeah, no, uh, she said to do this. And so basically they construct a new planet. They're going to go in, and they know that Pira is on their side. They're going to go in, they're going to try take out Iante, and then get the body, and then bring it back. And if they do this, they then, like, he's like, you'll give me back the sixth house oversight body. And she was like, if you do this, I will absolutely figure it out for you. So they go, there's a really cool, like Anthe is being all dramatic and Anthe. Anthe again is just such a great character. She's just drawling and arrogant and petty at the same time. And the other thing to say is that thematically speaking, she does not really respect Corona. But she's still her sister. Right, and she like likes her and wants to possess her, but she doesn't really respect her in any right. And like that thematically is going to become a thing both with what happens with God and then with like the lifters and the pairing. And so like that seems to be one of the themes of the book, even though I don't feel like these books had necessarily have a very strong thematic thesis. Um, but that is definitely one thing the author is working with. I will argue this book does have a very strong thesis and I will, there's like two or three different things that lead me to that, but we'll talk about that at the end. Camilla basically challenges Yanthe to a classic duel and she's like, there's no way you're going to beat me. I have necromantic powers and I have, uh, Babs's cavalierness. Plus I've been training for ages. You're going to die. And she's like, okay, I challenge you to a classic only, only cavalier only like sword stuff nothing else um and if you do it you can kill me but if i win you let me leave here corona's like i'll be 
referee and they basically what um she says because she can't bleed because babs is dead <laughs> she puts a little frilly purple handkerchief in her pocket and she's like if you can get this from me you you get to win and so they're dueling and it's really intense cam is doing great she's doing it's a real and all of a sudden she like sticks cam through the middle like just stabs her through the middle and as it happens cam goes like she sa basically says like battle to the six and yanthe's like what do you mean and then boom she passes out. And what you realize, what's been happening while this physical battle is ha has been happening, distracting Anthe, is Palamides has been fighting with mental necromantic powers with Yanthe's uh, control on Babs. Because Yanthe can't actually come down to the planet. If she does, she's going to get fucked because of the resurrection beast flying high in the sky. So she had to send down a revenant, her controlling uh, Babs's body. And she has she has some necromantic power, but limited because of this. And so Calamities is able to fight her and beat her out of Babs's body. And so there's this beautiful moment where uh, Camilla's on the ground and like, uh, Yanthe's Babs comes up and is like talking to her. And then she, he goes like, won't you look at me, Cam? Like, uh, he says, it's just, it's so fucking gorgeous. And you realize, oh my God, it's Palamides. And then they put their little heads together and you're like, oh my God, this is the first time they've been able to look at each other in fucking ages. Jesus. Or he says, he says, you carried me. You carried me and you believed me. And now you carry me still. Like, and it's just. Oh, I couldn't. It's so just everything. They are the perfect relationship. I don't care what you can define that relationship as. They're the perfect relationship. He's like, I can probably keep Yanthe out of this body for an hour. We need to go find the other body, make sure she doesn't hop into that and get the fuck out of here. Kira and um, Nona go to find the body. There's a really fucked up scene where there's a blood ward around the door leading to where uh, Gideon's body is. And Nona has such incredible regenerative powers that she can overpower the blood ward um, where it would have to work so hard. It would just basically fall apart. And how she does that is she's literally has to stick her hand through it. And it is the same spell or the same ward that, um, mercy Morn used to use to just explode people into dust, like, like into a fine mist of red. <laughs> and so she has to stick her hand and it like, explodes but then her hand starts like extra regenerating and then it's like two hands and it's like like it's just this monstrous thing what does she find inside the room she finds gideon's dead body and the thing is she doesn't move into her but for a moment you're like or her soul doesn't separate into her but for a moment you're like you think they are because she leans forward and she kisses gideon and gideon's eyes open and look vaguely horrified but she still looks dead and then Pyrrha comes in, Gideon's eyes close, and Pyrrha's like, what are we doing? And she's like, that was private! Like, in the entire, there's, like, there's <laughs> a later so point cute. where she tells someone, and she was like, Pyrrha, private information! Like, it's just, she's so cute. Like, there's super serious stuff happening, and she's just indignant that Pyrrha is kiss telling about her kissing. Because, like, she was like, how was it? And she was like, Pyrrha like it's just <laughs> there was one point where she was asking everybody what they thought sexy was which was hilarious and like she asked like hey camilla what does palamides think is sexy and she goes like homework or something and, and, like, and, a hard worker. and then she asked palamides and palamides uh, like is like oh uh nurses outfits and she's really indignant that camilla lied to her when pira asks her what she thinks is sexy she's like that billboard for those flowers and she's like there's only flowers on it nona and she was like they're sexy flowers <laughs> which makes so much sense in hindsight yes, so much sense but and it's and it's funny because later she's talking about it and she was like they were sexy like those sexy flowers on the bill like it just 
<laughs> also, so she funny. refers to she refers to everything sexual as the hand and mouth thing, and it's really just kid like and adorable. They grab the body and they look, and it has the wounds on like the slit throat and that giant wound through the middle from where she spiked herself on that fence. And so they take her back, and they're like, "Okay, so nothing happened with Nona. She's still dead." And then he's like, "You know, let me try get a vial of blood to see if that works." And he's about to like stick the body like in the thigh with a vial of blood, and uh. Gideon like jackknifes up and is like, get your hand. If that's how you get into someone's pants, sex. And he calls her, he call, she calls him sex something. And I forgot what it is, but it was very funny. And it's basically Gideon animating this dead body. And you're like, what the fuck? And basically what you discover, Gideon's body had been discovered by the blood of Eden somehow, which is not explained at all. Uh, Gideon's body was taken back to uh, like God and he put Gideon's soul back in it. And, it didn't make her alive, even though he has the ability to, which I'm not. I'm not positive he does. We find out he can do some really strong stuff later on in the book, but I'm not actually sure he has the power. To no, because remember, he resurrected. Anastasia died. Everyone died. He literally remade their bodies and put their souls back in it. Earlier in the book, he was saying that he didn't know how to like undo death. But towards the end of the book, you realize that he does. Like he learned how to do it. And I, everybody else is kind of confused about this as well. Like, why didn't he just... I feel like it was probably for control because like she is his daughter and probably the best chance for actually being able to kill him other than like Electo. Gideon is still her sassy self, but there is a sharpness, a real... Acerbic. She's a well, jackass. Yeah, well, no, but since we're not in her head, it's even more jackass. <laughs> For me, she felt extra like, like not just because she was always funny, but in this, she's very biting. Like there was, there was like, a, like an acid to her. And what it is, because there's this point where everybody's t- interacting with her, and Nona's looking at her, and Nona's like, "I don't like Kiriona Gaia." And then she's like, she's like, but nobody else could see it, but she could see it. She had never she's seen someone day. so sad. Someone so sad and so depressed in her life. So Gideon is like defense mechanism. Could it be because Gideon's like kind of on the opposite side of them now? So it's like familiar, annoying little Gideon personality and whatnot, but also with like they're technically Gideon's enemies now. So she's going to be a little bit meaner. I think it's because she thinks Harrowhark is dead. I just think she's depressed. I think she's not alive. I actually don't think Gideon should have been included in this because there's an extent to which she then doesn't really do, do anything, anything till the end of the book. And it's not like, why are we including one of the main puzzle pieces when it she's not actually going to do anything? And again, it's sort of annoying that we didn't get an explanation of how she got there. I don't think she had to come in so soon. I think she could have come in closer to the end. And without as much interaction. What if she was just at the ninth house and she said, fuck you to God? Be, or like, because God just told her, go to the ninth house and open this thing. And so she was like, okay, everybody else is going to come here. I'll just sit there and wait. And like, they get there, they open the thing. And like, it's Gideon with her glasses. Welcome home, assholes. That like, would have been great. That would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it could have been done differently. I thought she was the weakest usage of a character. And especially for someone we all very much love. I didn't love her as much in this book but for me it was because she just felt so fucking like like when people are in such a bad place they are the harshest and sometimes then the not loveliest version and this is really the first time we've been out of Gideon's head and have seen her interact and I mean this is also a good time to mention that I thought 
the portion before this and then this portion and then a little bit of the portion after this, I thought was too convoluted with the whole like Blood of Eden versus Ianthe versus what they're going to do next. Like it's a lot of plot and it's all very well written, but it doesn't. And none of it matters. Yeah, that's kind of the problem. And that's the thing, because they've never established the actual issue between Blood of Eden and the Nine Houses. It literally doesn't because like the actual thing is about the locked tomb and trying to kill John. I would agree that that is a fault in this book and that that should have been another primary purpose. But again, I still support the fact that this book is an integral part of explaining a lot of things. The plot twists of like the the Blood of Eden does this and then Neonthe does this and then Pyrrha does this and then Camilla does this and then the Blood of Eden does this. I don't think it's entirely integral. They go back to Blood of Eden. Blood of Eden is like, okay, we figured out where you're, they've been, uh, Merv Wang has had your people, the oversight board, and they've just been moving them around the city all the time, but we're not sure how they're doing it. And Nona's like, oh, that's the convoy. And they're like, what? And they're like, everybody knows about the convoy. It's just those giant trucks just driving around all the time. And then she's like, also, I had a friend who recently saw where they were, and then he got hit by something. <laughs> and they're like, the one relevant piece of odd device that Nona contributes. Yeah. The one, like all of her interactions with the school kids gave us this. It's actually extremely elegant because the thing that sometimes authors have problems with is they'll uh, introduce something that broadens the character or tells you more about them, but then doesn't tie back in terms of plot. But this does tie in and it makes the whole kid subplot actually make sense in terms of the arc of the novel. And like it lets Nona contribute. And we get that great interaction between like when Nona goes back to like get the information and then Hot Sauce like has to like accept her. She has to go and get the information from Honesty who Hot Sauce is with. She's like, can I be back in the gang? And Hot Sauce is like, okay, you're back in the gang. She regrets shooting her. I love it's, you, Nona. It's such a great capstone to that whole plot line with the kids and it like it really went somewhere and I loved it so much. And because like, here's the thing, I loved the kids stuff and I would never get rid of it, but there was a point where I was like, how the fuck is this going to connect back to the actual plot? Yeah. Like, how are you going to do this, Mirror? And part of it was by making Aim, who was the angel, uh, who is part of Blood of Eden, one of the teachers. I was just like, but there's so much time spent on these kids. How are we going to, and she does it and it's beautiful and it's absolutely masterful and it's such a good scene. Anyway, they go, they get the convoy. Once they get the convoy, Palamity starts talking real weird and Camilla ain't doing too hot. Cause again, she was stabbed through the middle and he was like, okay, we're going to take the convoy truck. And, and Pierre's like, but how are we going to get, cause she, he was like, we're going to the nine houses. And what you realize is that the resurrection beast is dropping down heralds, like these goopy, like blobs of blue stuff that have the heralds in them and if you remember from the last book the heralds are the like buggy weird creatures that fight people and it's so like the resurrection beast is gonna eat the planet now and everybody's like oh shit we're running out of time and calamities is just smiling and he's like nope we're gonna go to the ninth house and pierre's like how the fuck are we going to get to the ninth ninth house calamities and he's like we're going in the river and she was like i don't i, I don't think there's even a lictor who could get us there and god could do it and how the, we don't even have a lictor we don't have a functional lictor what the fuck are you doing palamides you're gonna get us all killed and she was like please don't do this i've seen it go wrong please just don't do it and he's like I, i'm not doing what you think i'm doing and she's like whatever you think you're doing don't do it he goes to like camilla and they're sitting across from each other and he's like listen if you say not to do this we don't have to do this like we will continue as we have been i'm absolutely okay with this but will you do this with me 
Cam. And she's like, yes, absolutely. And she goes, life is too short and love is too long. And you're like, what is happening? And so he takes a knife and there's this like powdery stuff in the knife and he gives it to Cam to eat. And then he did, he does like, he breaks open the knife, but something happens and Camilla's body bursts into white hot flames, just erupts insanity. Nona is watching it and she's like, she never thought you could die from watching something, but if you could die from watching something, this would be. And she just watches, uh, she can smell the burnt human flesh smell. And eventually the flames die down and what pops out from the flames is Camilla's body. Perfect. Way haler than it had been earlier. And then she looks at it. But it's not Camilla. It's Camilla's face, but it's not Camilla. And it's Camilla's movements and Calamity's movements, but it's neither. And what you realize is the two of them have joined their souls together and become one new soul. And Nona's very upset because two of the people she just loved have disappeared. I also was very upset by this, and I don't like it. Um, because I don't like it either. You're losing two characters to be merged together. And it's like, I just don't love it because now it's a new person. You don't know who it is. And also, I think the, the pinnacle of a relationship being merging together is a little bit weird. Like this, it's sort of implied that this is the perfect lifterhood, what everyone else was striving for. But I don't think that's perfect just to lose your identity to become one. It's the perfect lifterhood, not necessarily the perfect goal in life. Well, so I don't like that as an ending to them. <laughs> I want well, them to be together, not literally the this same This is person. still the book that it is. Agreed. I think it's a really wonderful synthesis, though, of a plot that we've kind Kind of put in the background at this point and i don't like paul uh aka calamities um i do not like paul as a person i think he's more unsympathetic than he should be and it really makes me uncomfortable it doesn't feel like a blending of the two like it doesn't feel like both it feels like neither i will argue because i'm going to talk about what the thesis of this book is and this is this is the other half of the thesis of this book there's two choices that are made and ways you can make them. And there's the selfish version and the unselfish version. And this is the unselfish version of Lichterhood. But we'll get there and I'll explain it. And Noodle is the key point of that. Maria and I both agree on this. And we both identified the fact that the thesis of this is selfish love versus unselfish love. Paul uh, is like, okay, I'm a Lichter. We can go into the river now. They like go in like, and they're in the river and they're in this truck and aim uh, so the angel comes with them and brings Noodle. <laughs> and so la- Our Lady of the Passions has to come, which is hysterical. I love her. A- anytime she's in something that is not her element, she's great. What's been happening with John is, like I said, John, they had the plan, the chi- cryo plan to get humanity out all at the once, all at once, and they pull their money. John is super, like, everyone is so devoted to this cause. They're not willing to just completely walk away from it. So they stay around, they keep working while they're, like, trying to like work on their own there is another plan happening the faster than light travel (laughs) plan uh where it's basically what you realize a bunch of billionaires are gonna create some ships and just yeet out into space and then there will be a second wave and a third wave because they can only take so many people because it's not they're not being packed in like sardines like with the other ones so you can't get everyone out at once so there's going to be different waves while that's happening john is very very attached to some of the corpses that they had. And eventually they have to, they're told by the um, like health inspector people that you have to get rid of them. So they unplug all of them. And what they realize is two of them, two that he was very fond of and he spoke to, and he started calling them in his head, Ulysses and Titania um, aren't decomposing. 
They're just not. And they start experimenting. Like, if we drop them in a well, if we burn them, like, like what happened? Nothing. Their internal temperature stays the same. They're not decomposing. And they're like, what the heck? Mercy Morn is kind of freaking out. Everyone's freaking out. And just as like, so that way you guys can picture kind of the environment and the world that they live in. It's essentially our world, but maybe a few years in the future. The climate crisis has been a thing, but there's still the internet. <laughs> um, and like uh, Instagram and, and uh, they reference, what was it? They Streaming. Reference- Coke Zero. At one point, someone's like, are you on Coke? Uh, Mercy Morn says to him and he's like, yeah, Coke Zero. And she's like, eh. And he's like, I have never met a pun I didn't like because <laughs> he just loves dad jokes. They're trying to figure out what's happening. And eventually, at one point, he brings Augustine and Mercy into a room. And the the two corpses that won't decompose are sitting there. And he introduces them like, hi, meet Ulysses and Titania. And then he makes them wave. But he's standing on the opposite end of the room. Mercy Morn does a heckin' freak out. And it's basically, this is the start. This is how... The necromancy started. He just could control these bodies. And eventually he discovers he can do things with them and make them do other things and puppet them around. And then he learns that he can like control other dead bodies and all this stuff. And and they're basically, he's building the entire basis for necromantic power trial by trial at first mercy morn is like not on board but then she is back on board he has a very close group with mercy morn and anastasia and augustine and a couple of other gideon and uh, pierre devey are there here is a cop he's basically building up his necromantic power eventually they decide when they discover the faster than light travel plan and basically what they realize it's a bunch of rich people who are just gonna escape and leave everyone behind so they're like we have to draw attention to ourselves we have to like people aren't taking us seriously even though we're questioning this we we have to we're going to stream the necromancy shit what they actually wanted to do at this point was just show people that the faster than light travel plan was dumb and what they needed was a platform and you can get a really big platform so it's like when people are mad at jk rowling for speaking against trans rights what she does on its own has nothing to do with trans rights But when she talks about it, enough people listen that it can change opinion. So what they were trying to do was build up enough of a social media presence that when they questioned, talked against, and targeted the faster than light travel plan, people would listen and pay attention. After they draw attention to themselves, um, the government goes to attack them to shut them down. What he does is he erects a wall of bone. And it's the first time, and you hear this a lot in the previous books, Living Bone. Uh, living bone construct and he just erects a giant wall uh and he used a bunch of cattle he was like i wasn't inhumane i didn't use people or anyone but there was some uh butcher cows in a field nearby and i used them i used them and i made a wall and he was like nobody could ever forget it and it's so funny because it's like cows have feelings cows like sunsets (laughs) cows recognize other cows and it just comes back over and over again it's a great shorthand for like the criticism against him that he feels and especially in the latter half of the book where his point of view is becoming increasingly frenzied and how he's describing this to harrow he'll just repeat it and it's like it's it's a really nice uh, rhetorical uh strategy or technique they're having such a hard time convincing people to listen to them that he and everybody just keeps calling him a cult leader and again he's been trying so hard to be scientific to focus on the facts to publish journal articles like he's trying to go about it the right way and everybody's like he's a cult leader weird magic and so he's like fun i'm a cult leader and i'm a fucking next necromancer bitches and so then people start coming to him as a cult leader and he's developing this support um and it just like eventually he kind of targets the faster than light people really hard and he uses um because there is a a country 
whose uh, elected official has died, and they don't want anyone to know that the elected official has died, so they hire him to puppet the corpse of the president. And I get the distinct feeling it is either Australia or it is America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of those two. Because he makes a joke about Australians later. Because this is all happening in New Zealand. Uh, like, what he's doing. What happens is that he gets a lot of money to be paid to resurrect this guy. Or not resurrect him, but puppet him, essentially. And you figure out that they were able to negotiate to get a suitcase nuke. And this is, like, it's been kind of building up to this point. But this is the point where you really realize, like... Oh, something is kind of wrong with him in that, like, this is a very ordinary man who is being put under a lot of stress and doesn't really know what to do or how to handle things. And so he's like, yeah, it's nice having a nuke because you like you can just like and he understands it's kind of weird and he doesn't really know what he's doing. But it's like it's leverage in case they ever need it. And he's like, obviously, we would never use it. But like, it's just good to have. And like and he has stopped eating. He is so good at controlling his uh the body functions and like he can cure cancer now and he has been doing this like people come and he'll cure their problems he does the jesus thing is how he calls it yeah the jesus thing and he just stops himself from needing to eat and so he hasn't eaten he hasn't slept like it's a whole so he is i can imagine mentally fucked because as much as we need those things physically there is something about the socialness of like interacting sitting sleeping waking up that he is missing and so like the man's heading for a big old fall. Eventually what happens is the last thing that he can't do is he can't do anything with the soul. Like he can make a heart start. He can make the neurons in the brain fire, but he can't give life. It's not happening. And he keeps trying to figure it out. And the first time, so there's like going to be a shootout or something. And he sees someone dying. He sees that like their soul. And it's when he sees the death, it's like cocaine. It's like he's almost addicted. And in a moment of anger, he just nukes all the cops in the area. Like he just kills them all, which Pierre is not happy about because a lot of them were her past co-workers who she liked. But at the same time, he can't he can't grasp what a soul is like he saw it, he felt it. And it was a thing, but he couldn't differentiate between the individual souls. It was just a thing that happened. And Pierre says to him, you are too powerful for mistakes. And he was like, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. And at the end of that chapter, Hera goes, so how did it happen? How did you make the mistake? And he goes, powerful men like me don't make mistakes. And you're like, Oh, John, so you're doing some really bad stuff. And I, I have to say, because we're going to get to a point where we express a difference of opinions about John. John is not necessarily a good person in everything he does, and he can be very selfish. But I am very fond of John. I, I, I think... I am in the minority. I like John too. I think John is a very great character. And I think his portions of this book are like some of the best. And that I just loved his narrative. And I like John. There's something tragic and sad about John and that he was just this researcher guy who made dad jokes and puns. And, and there are moments of him that are actually warm and harrow. I think he's a sleazy, selfish character. That's a really amazing, amazing. And you could say most craft character i get because katie and i spoke earlier when she says sleazy i get why she says that but he never he just felt tragic and misguided and like he's really above his pay grade yes. you know what i mean like he's such a normal dad joke kind of guy and like he's been giving these miracle powers and expected to handle a situation that's increasingly running out of control i agree with you maria about um john i personally love john as a character um, is he a good person? I would say that actually is a spectrum that shifts. So he started out as just a researcher who um, 
was making logical choices. So the problem with making logical choices is it's not always the one that is um, designed to save the most people. Um, like sometimes that logic doesn't go towards the humanitarian answer. Um, so like that's what kind of led to all this is he's making the logical choice of analyzing a situation. This is the answer. And over time, the situations get worse and the answers get more evil, whatever you want to call it. So it's not like he's like making choices to like do bad things. No. But the way that he progresses as a character is as it goes on, his morality kind of takes a backseat because like he has to make these choices. He can't think about it. And then like later on, his brain goes back and retroactively fills in the blank of why these were the right choices and why these were like the humanitarian choices. So it, like it's based on logic that he then goes back and fills in to make himself feel better about it. And like that way of like evolving into like a villainous or anti-hero, whatever character. Um, I've not seen that very often in books and I really appreciate it. And it's great. For sure. He did not intend any of this, but I think he's so pathetically selfish that he becomes a very frustrating and dislikable character for me. I mean, I personally disagree. I don't think he's necessarily selfish. I get where Katie's coming from and why she sees it that way, but I'm, I'm with you too, where I don't find him despicable. I like, I'm I, like I said, I don't, I'm, and we might be in the minority because Will was looking at online. Oh yeah. And everyone was talking about how like a, he's a villain. And I'm like, I don't think he actually did anything particularly no. bad. Like that's a thing that like seen it's a, it's a problem with like the blood of Eden where like the nine houses aren't doing anything particularly bad on page. I mean, he destroys the entire solar system kind of by accident. Yes. No, by accident, but it still happens, which is, he's not a villain. He's a very convoluted, complicated person. I would say he's an antagonist. But not like an evil villain or anything like that. He doesn't have those intentions. But I think he's weak-willed. And he makes selfish decisions that we'll get into. Characters that are that selfish, that they draw upon other people's emotional energy, I can't stand it. I'm very sad for him. I have a lot of, like... Especially when you hear Ianthe talk about how, like, we have to be there. If we aren't there, then he can just be sad and wallowing and lonely. She calls Pira de Vey, oh, are you another one of his duplicitous sluts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is so, yeah. so funny. Because so, you can tell, Iante loves God a lot. Like, genuinely and respects him. But anyway, he does that thing, but he still doesn't have a solid hand on it. And then, like Will was saying, they're, uh, the Faster Than Light, the FTL people, are going to launch, like, now. And he's like, yo government that i'm puppeting your thing for you have to stop them or i'm gonna do this nuke and they were like that's okay we'll we'll do it don't worry but give us your nuke so this plan happens where he sends gideon the first in with the nuke and he makes gideon the first a dead switch where if he is killed the nuke is gonna go off which gideon knows about and he says he specifically has to send in gideon because gideon's the only one who would agree to be a dead switch because pyrrha was like no i'll do it and he knew pyrrha would in no way allow herself to be something that sets off a nuke because gideon always listens to john um and so while that's happening they start like people come the the cultists that are surrounding their compound have decided they're switching sides and so now they're getting attacked and this was right when uh, i think cassiopeia and someone else were getting married and then at one point cassiopeia is yelling at him for sending in a dead switch and she was like i was just he was like i was just the best man at your wedding and she was like that has nothing to do with it's just it's great because <laughs> you really feel the interpersonal relationships in these little moments. And how it's all getting jumbled in the way he talks about it too is great. John comes to this um, 
like questioning of like what relationships mean. And I really felt that super keenly after that happens and Cassiopeia questions him and kind of becomes angry and frustrated with him. And when he says, I was just the best man at your wedding, he's like, how exactly limit or fleeting are these relationships that I have with people, how quickly they can dissolve over situations. Is it even worth the effort and the love put into them. All of this is going down. People are kind of mad at him for sending in a dead switch. Shit's going down. People are attacking. He's trying to like hold them off. Basically what ends up happening is he is locked in his room and he's like, he still hasn't solved the soul problem, you know? And uh, Anastasia, who's a nun. And she comes at this and she's the one who like compares him to like Jesus and stuff. Anyway, she comes to him and she goes, you still haven't figured out the soul thing, right? And she's got a gun. She's got Pira's gun. And he's like, no, I haven't. And she's like, well, I think I found a way for you to do it. And she shoots herself. And he's able to see her soul and kind of like grab onto it and like get it. And while this is happening, shit's shit's going bad. And he's able to do this thing. And again, he feels that rush of like drug highness and basically things with the um, uh, negotiations are going badly. The faster than light people get off planet. And he just, shit goes down. The The nuke is blown. And then everybody starts setting off nukes. And they're setting off nukes in the hope that other people wouldn't have done them. But they're doing it. And the planet just dies. And is dying around him. And so what he does is he tries to, as quickly as he can, as these nukes are going off, kill as many people before they can literally be melted by a nuke. And just kind of just like end them peacefully. And he's just grabbing all of these souls. And then like there's the planetary death. And he says, and I just reached out and I grabbed you. And I tried like a child trying to like suck their thumb after they've, I tried swallowing you. I tried fitting you in my mouth and I couldn't. And eventually he mixes up with this thing that he has grabbed and he separates it into two bits. And then he puts himself in the bit of this other thing in him. And he makes a body from blood, dirt, Uh, what's around him and he makes a body fashioned after a fucking Barbie doll that he loved when he was a kid and he fashions a body and he puts the soul the the, what is this other massive thing and he puts it in because he couldn't fit all of it it was so big he couldn't fit all of it into himself so he had to split it into a separate thing that has part of him in it as well and he puts it into a body and the it says to him like I chose you and this is what you did and then, like, at, at the end, she says, I love you. And he's like, you always say that. And you realize in that moment, that is how Electo was created. He talks about Electo being the first body he's actually able to put his soul into in Harrowhark. And you, you think that it's someone he knew beforehand. So this entire time, I'm like, where the fuck's Electo? This whole time. And you think the you, but you're like, who is this you? Electo is the soul of the fucking planet. Because while he's talking about this, he tries to, he's, he kills like a bunch of other planets because he's trying to get those ships. And as they're careening off, like Mars is going, all these other, he tries to get Jupiter, all of these things. He just nukes them all, but he's only out able to grab the planet soul of Earth and the rest go and those ships escape him. But the rest are all killed. And he says like, like and you realize, oh my God, she as the soul of this planet, is a resurrection beast. But she's a resurrection beast who has been given a body, who has been made living. And those other ones are the same as her. They just don't have a body. They weren't given an actual soul to interact with people with. 
and and it is just fucking mind blowing. You are like, holy shit balls. And the way he describes it is so beautiful because he's like making her and she made him by giving him because this whole time you're like he just got powers why was he the one dude and it's because she picked him and he picked her and like he tried the whole thing yeah i loved it so much and especially the way it was described and then he talks about how because this whole time they've been walking through this post-apocalypse world and they've reached the bunker where all this shit went down and he originally died and his friends died um and he talks about how He's going to this is because he's talking to Harrow as the memory of Electo that like this is where he's going to bring them all back. All of them, all of the people that and I wish I had reread this. I didn't get a chance because he's also talks very vindictively about the people who, you know, these trillionaires and the people who he tried to help and he couldn't. And he's like and even his friends, he talks about how he's going to bring them back, but he's not going to give them the memories of what happened at the very end of how the earth died because they would just not accept him they would hate him for it and it's such a interesting choice for him to do that because it is so selfish and there's also the fact that the names we know them by probably are not their original names because he only ever refers to them by their letters and their names are like who in the real world is called augustine and mercy moan and cassiopeia like these are odd names to have so it makes sense that these are ones he picked for them later it's also very funny because it makes the whole plot in the harrowhark where um, Augustine and Mercy Moan were really pissed that he could keep the Lictor alive, you realize is a lie. Electo is not his Lictor in the way that others are. Electo is the the planet, and she picked him as much as he picked her. And he can never die as long as she's alive, and she can never die as long as he's alive. And also, Electo is just, by the hints we get of her, is such a cool character because she's so primal and vicious and, like, just unrestrained we'll talk about it a little bit more he calls um, her a sociopath he calls her annabelle lee everybody else calls her electo after like one of the furies because she was such a weird person but yeah he talks about how like he's going to restart civilization he can just remake it all and if he doesn't like it he can do it again like he is god and i thought that was so interesting because i kind of had assumed that like the way they talked about him, he was like god emperor in the way that like oh you called the emperor god you know like he's a very powerful person but he's not god but here you realize no he actually almost has the powers of a god and then that's really interesting because what happens is that at this point harrow who he has been telling this to and whose memories he's been talking about she says, like, who is, what is God? What is it to love God? And he's like, I don't really know. He says some stuff um, I, that I don't remember. Again, I wish I had reread this chapter. But she, at the end of it, decides, okay, I'm going to go search for God. And she goes into the river, the, the Death River, and she goes towards a tower. And we have no idea what the fuck this tower is. If you put together, um, because each of the John chapters is named, like, John Roman numeral something, and if you put those together in order, it spells out, um, and in the arc chat copy it, it spells it out more. It goes like, clearance code accepted, the tower is open, it wants John, or something like that. It's That's not it exactly, but so like, it's going to become a thing in the next book. Um, and like, again, I just, I cannot overstate how much I loved this part. So this has all been happening throughout, but basically you get this information right at the point at which I was summarizing the plot. Before they get the six oversight body like before that happens and everything is falling down from the sky because of the resurrection beast uh nona grabs 
someone's sword. I think it's Gideon's sword, um, but it's someone's sword. She grabs, or it might've been crowns. She grabs someone's sword and she just goes outside and she starts yelling at the blue resurrection beast because earlier she said to the, she looked at the blue thing in the sky and was like, listen, we're dealing with a lot of shit right now. I need you not to do anything weird. Okay. I'm trusting you. (laughs) And so she starts yelling and she's waving her sword and she was like, I told you not to do anything weird. This is really fucking weird. And then who comes out of the car after her, but the body of Judith Deuteros who um, is speaking to her and is, is speaking again, like calling her the green thing, the salt one, like just this thing. And what you realize is that is the voice of the resurrection beast. It is talking to her through Judith Deuteros because she is the green one. She's the green planet. She's the salt thing because she's the only one that had fucking salt water. It's so cool. And basically he's like angry and he's like, uh, the the beast is, is saying to her, like you were basically murdered as well why are you like not with us and and she haggles with him to show mercy on like number one to show mercy for judith because he's killing her uh, or it is killing her and to like stop what it's doing and it it does it stops it and at that point after that when she wakes up and she's talking to pira later pira goes to call her electo she just gets an a out and she says don't don't call me that do not make me remember i do not want to remember pira um, and you're like, oh, fucking shit. Nona is electo. It makes sense because like her body came in and then like, because Harrow, if you remember at the end of the last book, Harrow's just like, okay, I'm going to go take a nap in the tomb. And she goes and she lays down next to the sword that's there and she like closes the thing on top of herself. And she's like, okay, I'm done. And that's actually what happened. Harrow Hark's soul has been living in the tomb this whole time. And electo has been in Harrow's body and experiencing the world as a new babe. Uh, and it's just fucking insane. And basically what they figure out is, uh, like Nona told everyone she was dying, but now it is happening real quick. Her legs are giving out. She can no longer feel them. She has to smell things. She has has to actively focus on smelling. And they're like, oh God, we need to get to the ninth houses now. And this is when they, they get into the river because like, she is, we need to get her. And she's like, are you going to take me to me? And they were like, yep. We're going to try. They're in the, the river. Things are going not great. And eventually she stands up and she's like, get off Paul, get out of the driver's seat. And she sits down and she, she unfortunately can't read the, reach the pedal because she's so, Harrow is so tiny. Um, and so Paul has to like help her with it. Uh, and they're driving through. At one point, Paul's like, okay, we're almost there. Just get us to the ninth house. And she's like, but do we have to? Do we have, wouldn't it be easier if we all just stopped? Wouldn't it be easier if I, um, if I died as me and we all just like didn't know what happened or something like that. And we could all just pretend we might wake up later. And she's like, I know we won't make up later, but we could pretend that we can. And Paul doesn't engage with most of what she says and just goes, Nona, Noodle's in the backseat. And she goes, oh my God, I forgot about Noodle and hits the accelerator. And and she's like, so like, and this is, this is the thesis of the book. That's the best line ever. It's a, such a great line. This is the difference between Nona and John. Nona chooses the innocent's life. She chooses to, to value and to keep that alive. Even if they might all actually die, it's not going to be because she made that choice. And it's that unselfish love. Because for Nona, the what she wanted to do in that moment, what she needed for her was to just die. She did not want to become Electo. And going forward means she has to become Electo. But then the knowledge that Noodle, the doggy that she loves, number one doggo, best friend, six-legged bub, is in the backseat. And that if Nona is selfish, it will mean noodle dies 
And she's like, nope, immediately, like, not even like a, oh, let me think, nope, oh my god, I forgot about Noodle. And she just floors it. And this is one of those moments where the the kind of hollowness I talked about actually works really great because you are with Nona in this moment and you don't need to describe her thought process. You're just like, yeah, no, Noodle's in the back. We can't have Noodle die. It pairs really well with earlier when she's yelling at the Resurrection Beast. She's like, hot sauce never did anything to you. Honesty never did anything to you. These are innocents and you don't need to do this. Like that she has learned to value life as Nona um, through that slice of life stuff. Do we ever figure out what happens with the resurrection beast? Like it just doesn't eat the planet, right? I don't think it does. I think it pulls back and it just like is still hovering there. And we don't because they leave. So we have no idea what happens. They literally yeet out. I'm sure we'll find out later. Just like we never got an actual answer how God and like you can assume Augustine had got shoved through the stoma, but we never actually get an explanation for any of that. Like the actual fallout from Harrow. We never got like an explanation of how they got out of that situation. Like, I don't know if we'll ever get it or she might like make a short story about that at some point. By the way, while she was writing this, she also wrote a 300,000, no, no, a 30,000 word alternate universe of Harrow and Gideon um, that she just, she's not going to publish or put anywhere. She just wrote it for fun. She's like, she's one of those writers that, I mean, we haven't really talked about it, but she is such a talented writer, both in terms of, I find the the dialogue a little overly twee at times, but I just have a bias against not really loving twee dialogue. But like, even her descriptions are so good and they're so vivid and the writing flows really well. There is such an innate talent to her that I'm really excited to see actually a how she handles Electo um, and Electo's viewpoint and the language of it in the way that she did uh, Harrow different than Gideon and then also just what she does after this too I'm excited for so I'm, all gonna, I'm also going to look up every audiobook that this narrator ever does and I'm going to listen to them not because of the book but because of the like it better be a good book if I'm going to listen to it but every single one she's incredible no true I'm there so they get to the ninth and uh, they have to get to the tomb and a bunch of stuff happens as they get to the tomb and we, we have some uh, characters pop up uh, Crux who's grumpy and and just the worst. Mwah, I love him so much. He's just a, honestly a really, really big dad for Harrow He Hark. loves Harrow so goddamn. And He's grumpy old man for Harrow That's Hark. why I love him because I love Harrow and I love the idea of someone loving. Because like at one point Gideon's talking to him and he was like, you are only ever a chain around my beloved girl's neck. And I'm like, you love her so much. There's also a line that's also thematically important. And I don't know if Gideon says it or Ike Lamine says it, but he's talking about um, how much they would do for Hera. And she's like, look, you would die for her, but none of you would live for her. Like that kind of like selfish love again is sort of a reoccurring theme. There's a weird thing that's happening on this planet that has been happening on this other planet, Antioch, uh, where there's like this weird creatures that are taking over people's body and um it is come to the ninth house and they're dealing with that while they're trying to get into the tomb they eventually have to convince crux to let them in but they do it as they do as they're doing this it's not going well for our girl nona she's literally falling apart at one point somebody's like grab her arm it's falling off so they're getting to the tomb and they realize they have to so gideon's the blood that they need is with gideon but she's dead so there's no energy there's no life force. So they're like, okay, we need some fresh dead. We need some fresh dead. Uh, or Like, the energy is the dead force. But they need fresh death. And, like, Gideon's already dead. And so her cutting herself and her blood has nothing in it. Like, there's no power in it. And so 
Uh, Pyrrha's like, let me do it. I should have died a long time ago. I would have died back then if somebody had asked me. Aglamini's like me, and then Crux is like, no, if somebody's going to die for Harrowhawk, it's going to be me. Like, I shall do it. And Gideon and Crux start arguing, and they start, like, it's, and you can tell he's trying to coax her because everyone's still arguing about who's gonna die. He's like, he's decided it's gonna be him, so he goads Gideon into killing him. And she kills him, and then she's like, it didn't feel good. Why didn't it feel good? God damn you, Crux. Why didn't it feel good? The next thing that happens is they get into the tomb and Ianthe is there. Ianthe is there to stop them. And then we think that Gideon has um, double crossed them because she goes up and does a handshake, cool handshake with Ianthe and they seem really chill together. Oh, and she's she's trapped them in adipose fat. Ugh gross and then it ends up that then gideon double crosses her and is like no this is what father wanted he sent me to get electo out and kill her so that he can die because he can't die till electo dies because he's just very depressed right now he's stressy depressy as maria would say i think it's so weird that she calls him father this whole part and her friendship with the i didn't love it's a really no it seems so out of character yeah especially after last book yeah they disliked each other so much and because at one point anthea is like are you doing this for harry and basically what you get from this interaction is how much ianthe loves god and wants god to stay the same and wants god to stop being a depressed little bub and Gideon's here to like fuck up God. Oh, and then the other thing that happens is that Nona hears what she didn't want to remember, which is that God loved her. John loved her and he had brought her to the tomb and lured her in. And like that knowledge is so painful for her. I think that's what actually starts setting her off with her body falling apart. And so she goes and they lay her and because Electo's body is there, the soul does that gravity thing that they thought was going to happen with Gideon. And and Harrow's soul was in Electo's body, so the two switch. And so at that point, we wake up and we get the epilogue, which is written in this really great style. It's absolutely fantastic. And I'm, I'm going to read the opening of it because it's, it's amazing. So epilogue. When the rock that had been made meat awoke in a body, it cried out aloud, saying, you. Then it broke the chains that were upon its wrist, and the right wrist broke with them. It broke the chains that were upon its left wrist, and the left wrist also so followed the chains upon the right ankle and upon the left until its arms and its legs and the chains were broken all as one when it raised its terrible head the chains around the neck collapsed and collapsed into dust and it cried ah 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 at the breaking of the chains and of the bones one of the children there offered violence to her appearing on the altar and raising her weapon high but the black-eyed infant collapsed on the altar child chid her sharply in a clear voice saying what is this that thou wouldst do, Tridentarius? Touch her, and our vow will come to, come to nothing, and I will slay you where you stand. To which the first child said, Thou knowest not what thou dost. And the second child answered, Not lately, but now. And the first child asked, Dost thou oppose me, and thou half dead? And the second child said, I am as one half dead, but you would be two halves dead, bitch. And that's the style. It's so funny. And I'm I'm really curious to see if this is how she writes the whole next book. I can't imagine that she does, but like I love the style of the, the contrast between the Shakespearean language and the more contemporary anachronistic dialogue, I think is great. And even the the just the narration style, like the and then the first wrist was broken, and the second, like it's it's got this biblical nature to it that is mm-hmm. just so great. Electo like knocks Tridentarius down and and she turns to uh, and she calls all of them children because they are so young in comparison to her. Um, and as she's first dying and falling apart, uh, Nona refers to her body as the child body, the baby body. And it's because Electo is so fucking old. And she turns and the the 
dying child or the half dead child is Harrow. And she basically like remembers Harrow from her dreams because her and Harrow have been interacting. She Harrow carried her um, for a while and she kisses Harrow. And by kissing Harrow, she's able to taste that she is the blood of Anastasia and her and Anastasia had a deal. And there's a moment where as Nona is fading and she remembers that when John lured her in, she said, where's Anastasia? I want Anastasia. So there was evidently some closeness between her and Anastasia. Also, we find out that Anastasia's body was in the tomb as well. It was like in a little back part you can see. I had to look up who Anastasia was because I was like, I just could not remember. She's the nun. She's the founder. <laughs> see, I didn't remember The at nun all. that shot herself in the head. She says, you are Anastasia's line is not broken. You are of Anastasia's line. And Harrow's like, yes, indeed I am. And she's like, good. I will renew my vow with you and you can do with me what you will until the time is what you decide you don't want me and Harold's like I am uh, young and stained I do not deserve this and she's like nope I shall swear myself to you anyway and then from the back you hear Gideon say get in line you something slut where is it because it's <laughs> you pretentious slut yeah. I think or something like um, that to which a voice on the opposite side of the shore was raised exceeding wrath and Electo heard it shout in a very great shout get in line thou big slut um and that's Gideon. <laughs> you remember that Harrow is so totally in love with Electo. And so she called her her dead girlfriend at a certain point in, in Harrow. Um, and then in the second half of the epilogue, she goes and try Electo goes and tries to kill God. And she stabs him with the sword she had. And he is like, he wakes up, I think. He's like, he's not dead. Yeah, he's like, Annabelle, good morning. And she also has, at this point, Harrowhark is just slung over her shoulders. So she literally goes through the river with Harrowhark's body finds John half like naked hung over just stabs him with a sword and he just wakes up and is like ah Annabelle good morning and you're just like and that's how the book ends that's it congratulations that's it so a couple of things one thing I will say is that I really we didn't get a hint of it in the epilogue but in the next book I'm going to be disappointed if there isn't hints of Nona in Electo because it kind of makes this whole book a little pointless almost if the emotional growth of Nona, which is the core of this story, doesn't have an impact in that story. I also felt the same way. Nona is so important and that's her true, like, pure self, I feel like. So if she isn't able to be, like, if she becomes like a literally a banshee and becomes like this revenge force without any of the healing previously, I think it would be really lost. Earlier, Harrow asks God, why does she have so much anger in Electo? And I agree that Nona is the soul of Earth full of wonder at creation and life and at the simple things, but without the trauma of John. <laughs> and the betrayal of humanity to her body, which was the Earth. When Electa was put into her flesh body, she had exclaimed to John, um, you've put me in this wretched form. Why have you done this to me? I chose you, and yet you do this to me. How could you do that? And so it's a betrayal of their, like, it, almost like Mother Earth chose him to be able to have control over the dead. And it's almost like, in a weird way, a foil to her. And so he's like kind of like literally the darkness, she the light. And it's just um, like it makes sense for her fury to want to revenge upon John. And it's also interesting because even when she comes to and she says that to him and he gives an answer and he says to Harrow and, and something about what did she say next? And Harrow says, I love you. And he goes, you always say that. And because Electo also loves John, she does love him. He was her chosen and so I think, honestly, the thing that makes her, I think she's very much a sociopath. 
after like he comes back to, she comes back to life but i don't think she is as wrathful or i don't think she ever tried to kill john until he locked her in a tomb for an undisclosed <laughs> amount of time i mean i think she's just a planet and that's how she thought about things and to humans that comes off as like vicious and a little crazy and again he never called her electo he called her annabelle lee john also is the one that instigated the nuclear war he's the one that quote unquote pushed the button he didn't actually but like he quote unquote pushed the button and harrow even brings this up at one point and he cuts her off and he said like he doesn't want to accept it and uh so in the end despite all his trying he was kind of the final nail in the coffin for Earth. there's a lot of shame he has towards that i think what gina said earlier of him trying to rationalize it from like to make it the right decisions afterwards is really true but what i wanted to point out was the body didn't remember that she was electo until pira calls out and calls her electo during the scene and electo said Pira, he laid me down as an appeasement to them. He fed you to them as an appeasement to them. But he has never appeased me. And now all he has done was teach me how to die. I think that's fucking gorgeous. Oh, this is my point from earlier. How the Paul thing is a reflection of Nona's unselfish love. Lichterhood, the unselfish form of Lichterhood, is what Camilla and calamities does they sacrifice both of who they are for a greater good and for uh power that will save everyone and be them and not them at the same time uh and that is because ianthe comes and she sees it and she goes oh there was a way there was another way and paul says you we can help you we can help you and nabirius like you don't have to and she's like nah and she dips because as much as she does love Babs, she is selfish. She will not give up who she is for that. That makes sense. That tracks really well thematically, I think. The thesis of this book as a whole is selfish versus unselfish love. And that's why I argue that John, because when he resurrects everyone, he makes the point that he's resurrecting them with no memory of what happened before. He says it's because he doesn't think that he wouldn't get forgiveness. They wouldn't forgive him. And also, they themselves would be tortured and they wouldn't be able to forgive themselves. They would constantly be asking, what did we do? How could we have avoided this? But at the heart, it's also because he knows that he, like, he'll lose his best friends. But it's not purely selfish because he is acknowledging that there are benefits to them not remembering, too. That's why I was saying earlier of, like, the difference between, like, John having selfish actions and John being, like, a super selfish person. No, I don't think he's a super selfish person. I think he loves selfishly. There's a reason he didn't make the choice nona makes nona loves unselfishly that's why she saves noodle he killed a fuck ton of noodles <laughs> he killed a lot of noodles there was kitties and doggos he did not again the cow cows mourn each other cows look up at the sky and she would have understood that it's not the choice nona would have ever made and because like here's the thing that ship leaving the planet was not a reason <laughs> for things to go the way they did now granted he was he was angry on behalf of everyone who was being left behind it's a little ambiguous i think in terms of like he speeded it up but at one point he mentions like the atmosphere not working on one of the continents like it's very things are going very wrong there's a chance that they would have died but nona made the choice not to let them die in that moment and to give them the chance for her what would have made her happy in that moment was to never get into electo's body and to just die for her personal benefit, dying in that in the river would have been the best thing. But again, she makes the choice for the little noodles of the world. She tells Pira, 
I don't want to stop loving you and I don't want to stop loving. Uh, I'm going to not love Palamides and I'm not going to love uh, Cam. So when she turns into Electo, she will no longer have those feelings. And so she wants to die as herself. And that's so like, despite everyone wanting her not to die. I'm really excited to see what happens in Electo. I think as a whole, this book it's really good and I really liked it. I still feel like it's kind of a plot cul-de-sac. If it had just been like, I don't know, a fifth shorter, I would think it would work really well. Maybe a fourth shorter. Um, because again, nothing really happens that can't just be like yada yada, <laughs> like that trope. In the same way that there's a lot of yada yada between um, Harrow and this book and Gideon and Harrow, where like characters just show up and we're told later what they were doing, like with the whole blood of Eden or where Harrow's body went. In this one, all that really happens in terms of what we think of as the main plot is Gideon is in her old dead body now, which happened off screen to begin with so we why she couldn't just show up at the tomb i don't know harrow is now out of electo's body and electo is now in her body again and so it's like that growth of nona has to be important for this book to structurally be important did you read the book have you read harrow the ninth gideon the ninth what did you think of it were you able to catch all the little easter eggs and stuff um let us know and uh we love you our parasocial darlings bye 